This morning we will be beginning a new series. We will begin a new series on the book of Acts. Um, I, I love new series. It takes a little bit of time to get the rhythm, but this morning kind of starts, I think, with a bang. And if you're not familiar with the book of Acts, it, it is a historical account of the early church. And it is written to a man we don't know named Theophilus. And it's the second volume of a two-volume work written by Luke. So Luke has written the gospel of Luke to Theophilus. Shane actually started preaching from there in, uh, in RUF a few weeks ago. And then Luke is continuing teaching Theophilus about the works Jesus is still doing. And we're going to talk about that today from chapter 1 as we look at the beginning of this letter, this book. And I, th- I think what's important is there's a person who needed this history. Like Luke knew this man needed this story. We need this story. And it's very easy for us to go about life thinking we kind of get the general premise of Christianity. And yet it's very important to come back to scripture, to come back to the story and connect your story. Where are you today? Where are you right now? What's happening in our world today and what was happening in the world then, and see the connection. So that's what I hope will happen as we face and and walk through this amazing uh, story of Acts. We'll we'll be dealing with the first nine chapters roughly this fall, and I'm excited about it. So if you'll turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 1, we'll look at the first 11 verses. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you, do the, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, it is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven." This is the word of the Lord. Father, we praise you that you've promised your spirit. And we praise you that we have this very work, this very Bible we read from as a gift from your spirit. And that as we read it, you promise to illuminate it to our souls. Lord, it is not just an ordinary book. It is, it is powerful and effective to teach us. And Lord, we need that more than ever. We confess as a congregation, as people, that we are prone to look to to so many different sources. 
Lord, let us learn to come to this source and to you first for the direction of our lives. Amen. Years ago, um, this book was given to me, and I love it, and I still read it. I've asked certain leaders in our church to read this book, and if you want to, I'll just, it's called Dynamics of Spiritual Life and Evangelical Theology of Renewal. It's in the library. By the way, we have a library. Someone told me they didn't know that. So that, that office, all those books, you're welcome to check out. This is one of them. Richard Lovelace was a professor at Gordon-Conwell, very influential in Tim Keller's life and many other pastors and ministers. But this is about what does it take? What, how does God revive and renew people? And what I love is he begins with history. He begins with Jonathan Edwards in The Great Awakening, and he examines in a, in a brief way the power of different evangel, evangelical awakenings. And what he finds out is that, that the Spirit is routinely reviving the church. So Jonathan Edwards, if you aren't aware, he was a pastor um, in the 1700s. He was a pure, uh, they would call him a late Puritan, but um, Congregationalist, Calvinist. And he began preaching uh, in his grandfather's church. And it took a little while, but eventually his sermons began to actually revive what he would call a fairly dead church. And they began to have an outgrowth of, of the spirit. People were converted. People were um, changed. It spilled over into the community. But what it made it amazing was it didn't just happen at Northampton where he was preaching. It began to happen concurrently all up and down the coast. And even in Europe, it was beginning to happen. This is called the Great Awakening. In fact, men like John Wesley and George Whitfield took the message that was already happening and codified it and developed ministries around it. Whitfield came over to America, preached at Edwards Church. He would preach in churches until they got too full. Eventually, he'd have to preach in open-air spaces. I think it was uh, Benjamin Franklin, who was a friend of his, who had gotten measure the distance his voice could be heard. And, and it would be just a, the crowds up to 20,000 people with no amplification other than his voice. God was pouring out his spirit. But what's amazing about the Great Awakening, and for me, I first heard about it in a secular humanities class at UCO, that even secular historians have to acknowledge this was a real event. Things happen, things change. It's credited for leading to the abolition of slavery in Europe and many other social changes. But Jonathan Edwards actually wrote about it, which is, makes, is what makes it more fascinating. He's a brilliant uh, theologian, philosopher, and as he began to write about it, here are some things he noticed. He said, he stressed as he was preaching that the core of the awakening was not an emotional experience, but a spirit-given apprehension of the reality of God, which purged the heart and led to meekness and to a lamb-like spirit to the outflow of good works. Do you hear the two things? A connection to God leading to meekness and lamb-like spirit, so a humble spirit, but also the outflow of good works. And one of the most important aspects he said was that the end result was the performance of works of mercy and justice. So that this awakening wasn't simply something that happened in a room or in a religious service, which is important, but it changed the culture. We'll talk more about that as we go. But what we're having here in the book of Acts is really the ultimate awakening, right? The, uh, Edwards at one point notes throughout Scripture the way the Holy Spirit works, the different awakenings. 
One of those is in Judges, which Cindy is taking the women through. The, 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 really the theme of, which is cycles of renewal, cycles of awakenings, cycles of people who've walked away from God. Something bad happens, they cry out, and God sends them a judge, someone to come in and rescue them. Well, all of those judges point to one person, don't they? Jesus. And so here we are in Acts, and Luke is telling Theophilus and all of us, let me tell you about Jesus. This world is broken. This world is damaged. And I want to tell you about the one true God, Jesus, who's coming to rescue us. And so this morning, we're going to look at just a few simple truths from this first passage as we set the stage for the rest of the book of Acts. Uh, one thing Edwards also mentions is, or actually it's Richard Lovelace's own interpretation of, of these renewals. He says they rest on really two principles. One, the truth of justification by faith, that almost in every renewal he studied, that truth becomes prevalent yet again. It sort of wanes for some reason, and then it becomes fresh again. And then secondly, sanctification, that is growth and holiness. Both are needed, right? You don't ever want to have the pursuit of holiness without justification by faith. But we also don't want to have justification by faith as a doctrine, but yet it just sits on the shelf and no holiness comes out of it. So what we'll notice this morning is both are included in our outline. And the outline is this. Number one, what Jesus did. Number two, what Jesus is doing. And then we're going to finish by looking at how we participate in this. So let's start with what Jesus did. Luke is obviously writing a second volume. So point one is going to be a summary of his first volume, the Gospel of Luke. I'm just kidding. I'm not going to really do that to you guys. But I'm going to just paraphrase some of the things Jesus did. In our, in our very passage here in Acts, I just want you to notice, um, he says, In his first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach. Until the day he was taken up, after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself, so he's raised. He presents himself alive to them after his suffering. And that's a very important point. It's easy to skip those kind of details, but Luke is reminding us of the necessity of Jesus' suffering. And this is a very hard reality I think for modern people to hear that Jesus had to suffer. And it's about justice, right? Jesus had to come and, and die on a cross for the injustice of the world. Justice is important. Recently, I was actually this week watching the nightly, nightly news. I hadn't done this in a long time. Lester Holt. And he was doing a, a piece on prisons. And it was really a piece on victims' rights. So it started off with a group of men whom he was meeting with, and then it, ju it jumps over to a lady who's saying, I think victims should get to speak into what the perpetrator's punishment is. And they interviewed a woman who had been um, abused in a massage parlor, and she was like, yeah, I think if, I want rehabilitation, and I want justice, but I want rehabilitation, and they interviewed her. But here's what was interesting. The men he started meeting with that started the whole piece, they were men who had murdered somebody. And what was fascinating was these men were a group who were part of a, I don't know if it was a ministry or a counseling method where they had to finally come to terms with what they had done. So instead of saying, I'm innocent, like so many in prison might do, they were like, I'm guilty. In fact, Lester went around the room and asked each man, who was your victim? 
and each one named the person they had killed. It was powerful. And then they jumped back to that lady who says, I think victims should have a voice in how the punishment is, is dealt out. Well, these victims are dead, right? And so I'm not trying to get into politics. What I'm trying to say is, with severe injustice, there has to be there has to be a penalty paid. There has to be something paid. And if that's the way we as a society operate, then certainly that's the way the universe operates. And so I think so often we come to Christianity and we want to say things like, you know, did Jesus have to die? Or why did he have to die? We aren't that bad. And the answer that Luke tells us, and we see it here in Acts, is that Jesus suffered because of the injustice of our sin, right? Jesus went to the cross because of what we did. And we call that, here's a couple of theological terms, active and passive righteousness, okay? So active righteousness, Jesus comes to earth and he lives a perfect life. He's in, it, we, another term would be alien righteousness. He comes from outside of earth, he's God incarnate. He lives on earth and he lives a perfect life. So write that down, active righteousness. What is active righteousness? It's Jesus's perfect obedience on earth. But then we're told, we know in Luke and in all four of the Gospels, Jesus is, goes to the cross and he suffers. That's his passive righteousness. That is, he, he passively fulfills all the demands of the law of God. And actually, it's, it's not just the, the abuse of the, of the Roman Empire on his body or even the Jews, but it's ultimately the fact that the wrath of God is poured on him. And, and in his death, that is satisfied. So we have the, the story of what Jesus did. It's his active righteousness, his passive righteousness that covers you and I. And that is the truth. That is where we get justification by faith. Your righteousness, your justification, that is your righteousness before God is Christ's righteousness. It is yours. I mean, that is the message of Christianity. Um, I, was, I was hearing a, a pastor uh, say he was, he was interviewing people about um, their answer of what is Christianity. And he was going out and just trying to get a general sense in a fairly large congregation. And most people would say things like loving your neighbor. You know, they would have right answers like worshiping God. And, and the answers were all correct for the most part, but they were man-centered. So point number one that I want you to begin to hear is this. Stop thinking about what you do first and start thinking about what Jesus has done for you. Like that is the essence of Christianity. Jesus has died for you. Jesus has taken all of your sin, past, present, and future, and paid the penalty. You've heard that a million times, but here's the question. Is it starting a revival? Is it starting a revival? Because it did in this letter, in this book of Acts. It did in the Great Awakening and, and countless times throughout the church's history. Are we finding that truth to move us? One of the thoughts I, I was having as I was preparing this message, as we draw this point to a close, is it's interesting to note you have these, this active righteousness and this passive righteousness, but I want you to understand Jesus' active righteousness, that is, his holiness, that is, him resembling God, is what led to his death. Have you ever thought about that? That it wasn't like this kind, of, this kind of like weird timing in history that he died. At any point in human history, God comes down and acts like God and loves and preaches what Jesus preached. 
humans will kill him. It leads to problems. Allender famously uh, in his book, Bold Love, I've quoted it before, says if Jesus lived the kind of love that's popular today, he would have lived to a ripe old age. But his love led to people being restless and angry and frustrated and they had to move him out. So his love was so pronounced and so profound that even you and I, we'll see in chapter two, are named amongst those who put him on the cross. And had we been there unredeemed, we would have wanted him to go away. That's how powerful what he did is. So that is what Jesus did. And the legal side of that is it has, if you are in Christ and that blood has been applied to you, then you are redeemed. However, point two is, the, is really where I want to spend the, the majority of this morning is what is Jesus doing? What is he doing? I think so often um, when I meet with people and I'll ask about Christianity, I'll hear really good theological answers, but we'll often miss the present moment-by-moment relationship we have to Jesus. And Luke doesn't miss that. Listen to what he says. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do. Do you hear that? What's What's the implication? Now, let me tell you what he is doing. Present tense. And we know famously, guys, that Acts 28 is not the last chapter of Acts. So what we understand is that from this moment on, we are in a new era of what Jesus is doing. Right? His Holy Spirit has come. Listen to verse 9. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. That's called the ascension. Jesus ascended. So often when we talk about the ascension or think about it, we have this feeling of like maybe a child going away to college or a loved one moving overseas. It's a sad, like Jesus went away. Right? And we're kind of, do you have that feeling sometimes when you think about the doctrine of the ascension? And we're sort of here by ourselves. But that's not, I have a different way for you to think about it. Um, think about a senator who you know, a person who's going to run for office. He came up from uh, within the family or the church or the, the, the town, and he runs for office and he gets elected and he goes to Washington. Right? You don't think, oh, they moved away. You think they're going to go. And hopefully do the things they promise to do. When Jesus ascends to the throne, what he is doing is carrying out the promises that he's made on earth. We need him to be on his throne. Because from the throne, he rules and he reigns his kingdom. There's a place in the end of John where Jesus has raised from the dead. And Mary has come to the garden and finds the tomb empty and she's weeping. And Jesus says... Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener. And she said, sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned to him and in Aramaic, Rabbani, which means teacher. And Jesus said, do not cling to me for I have not yet ascended to the father. Now, we know people who get too close. Are you a close talker? We know that, right? Like, okay, you kind of step back a little bit and then they, how, how did that happen, you know? Um, I'm sorry if you're one of those or if I'm one of those, please let me know. Mary, Mary was not a close talker. She was intimately holding on to Jesus and he did not mind, like he was not like, get away from me. He was letting her know a profound truth. 
you think you're close to me now, but if I ascend to the Father, I will dwell in your soul. And you'll have more intimacy than you can ever imagine. On the front of our worship guide, there's a quote from Augustine, which really is why I put it in there because of that very statement. He says, you ascended, he's speaking to Jesus, you ascended before our eyes and we turned back grieving only to find you in our hearts. Is that your view of the ascension? Jesus has ascended to his throne, but he's also ascended to rule over the kingdom of God. Where is the kingdom of God? Um, This is a tricky concept. It's not the church. When I speak of the church universal, what's meant by that is all the Christians alive from all of time, right? We don't know, no offense, but not everybody in here is probably a Christian. I hope you are. And if you are not, I would love to talk to you more and, and process some of the truths. Sometimes people pretend to be Christians and are not Christians. And so the, the particular church or the local church is not the church universal. The church universal are the saints who actually have been adopted by Christ and are Christians from all of time. That's the church. But that's not the same thing as the kingdom. The kingdom is the universe, right? Abraham Kuyper famously, the quote I'm going to butcher, he says, there's not, Jesus says, when he looks at the universe, there's not one thumb span of which he looks at Jesus and does not say, it is mine. This entire universe is Jesus's. When you drive down 6th Street, I'm, if, if, this, if someone is political and is in this local politics, I'm offending you. Here we go. There's a sign that says, thank you for visiting Stillwater. But it's at Western. Now, I know that in 1897, that was the western edge of Stillwater. But I live like three more miles that way, and I live in the town of Stillwater. I'm always like, wait a minute, I'm not leaving Stillwater. Anyone else? And then I've been in Stillwater from my home, and I get to Western, and it says, welcome to Stillwater. I'm like, I've been in Stillwater. The kingdom of God has no signs that says leaving the kingdom of God. Your quiet time, when you get up and go to your boring cubicle with the humming uh, light above you, and, and all, you're not leaving the kingdom of God. When your kids all go off to school and you're alone and you feel depression come on you, you have not left the kingdom of God. When you walk out of these doors and you drive, you have not left the kingdom of God. It is with you. It is everywhere. And you are one of the agents. And Jesus has only just begun the work that we read about in Acts. And it's important that we connect to this power. So if point number one is the truth of what Jesus did, point number two really needs to kind of come around to what he is doing. And it's the power, the power source of what Jesus is doing. Um, Power is important, right? He says in verse eight, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. Now we're gonna spend time on that later, but I want you to understand power doesn't have to mean extreme power, right? How many of you have surge protectors? We don't want everything to just have all the power, right? It doesn't mean muster up adrenaline, right? Power means where are you getting your energy? From where is the energy coming from? And what Acts is teaching us and what the whole Bible teaches us is it comes from the Holy Spirit. In his first book, Luke, in chapter 11, famously talks about how even an evil father gives good gifts. How much more will our heavenly father? Now, an evil father, that's not right. 
a father who has fallen. A loving father, but who's not perfect is what he's really referring to, right? Who yet still gives good gifts. He says, how much more will your heavenly father give you? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the heavenly father give you what? Good gifts? Anyone want to venture a guess? The Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit. So, so often where I think our theology can go wrong is we get caught up in the doctrines which are so crucial, but we forget that daily and moment by moment life is to be lived out of the power of the Holy Spirit. And that's really a point number two. And that's what leads us to revival. And so I want to now, as we move into the final section of our discussion, how do we take hold of it? I'm going to just restate it again. How do we take hold of the truth of what Jesus did and the theology of our justification? And how do we also take hold of the power that is sanctification, that is the Holy Spirit who grows us in him? And our third point is going to be how do we take hold of it? And I want you just to think about what we're doing here. Um, What are we doing? What is this letter? This letter is a letter to a person named Theophilus. I've already mentioned that. He needed a letter. He needed someone to write to him, right? And I think so often we have this image of the early church as being people who just believed everything, right? They just believed, right? In fact, we would assume because they're um, kind of, we have an ancient, we have a bias against people that are ancient people. They're kind of, in our minds, unfortunately, we think they're dumber, And so we just assume when Jesus rose, they all said, yay. That's exactly what we thought would happen. Or if it's not what we thought would happen, we believe in you fully now. But look at our passage. Again, back in verse three, he presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs. It turns out Jews did not believe in the type of resurrection that Jesus did. There are different groups within the Jewish culture at the time who believe different things about the resurrection, but none of them assumed you would have this new heavenly body as Jesus did. And they they were resistant to him, even his own disciples. And of course, Greeks would think of a resurrected body as completely like anathema. The bodies are dirty. And so Jesus rises with a heavenly body. And so he's able to do kind of weird things like eat fish. So he eats food, but he passes through walls. Okay, it's a powerful risen image, but they needed proof. Do you need proof? I hope you would answer yes. Here are a couple of questions. When you think about Christianity, the, the Christianity that we're talking about this morning, that Jesus, what he did, and Jesus, what he's doing, two quick questions. In your mind, is it for everyone? Is it what everyone needs? When you open the newspaper and you read some story that's horrible, do you think that person needs the gospel? When your neighbor, who you might think, well, they're, they're a Buddhist or they're a different religion or they're atheist, do they need the gospel? What I'm not asking you is do you share the gospel? That's, of course, important. I'm simply asking you if you believe in your soul of souls that the answer to life's problems is Jesus, ruling and reigning in their heart. And then secondly, do you believe that for your own heart? Do you believe that Jesus has a desire 
for every square inch of your own heart? Or are there places that you sort of wall him out, right? Like I have Jesus in my religious life, but in my public life or in my financial life or in my career life or in my Facebook life or whatever life I'm leading, I'm sort of doing it on my own. That's not how Jesus wants us to be. He wants to have every square inch of us. Is that your view? Do you believe you would flourish if he had every square inch of your heart? Or is there an unbelief that says, I don't want to be one of those people? Some sort of doubt. I want to invite you all to agree with me that we struggle with doubt. The reason revivals aren't always happening isn't because the gospel isn't true. It's because we are not tapping into the truth of Jesus. And it's a promise he pours into us and we are the ones who are sort of stepping back from him. So how do we get into that? How do we lay hold? I'm gonna invite us to be like Theophilus. This morning, uh, Tom Carnes began a Sunday school class that Eddie, Tom, and I'll do some of it as well, are leading through the Bible. And it was just beautiful to hear the video and hear the teaching that Tom brought about the reality of the Bible. And I have to confess, I've heard it so much. You've heard it so much. You open the drawer and you get to the hotel and there's a hardback Bible. Everywhere you look are Bibles. And yet our culture knows the scripture as little as it's ever known. Like when I went to seminary 20 years ago, God, that sounds crazy. Um, I remember going into an entry class and they made you take an exam because they said every year the amount of the Bible these students, these are men training for ministry, the amount of Bible they know goes down less and less and less. That means, now I guess let me just throw another thought with that. When you want to learn something, how many YouTube videos do you watch? Right? How many experts do you seek out? Why not the scripture? My guess is because we think God is harsh. We've forgotten point one. And we've forgotten point two. He's ruling and he's reigning. And so he gives us the scripture. And Theophilus is probably a person who's, I'm not going to sit here and tell you what he's doing, but Luke has some severe concern for because he writes these two volumes. And if not the person, Theophilus, at least the early church, they need reassurance that Jesus is who he says he is and Jesus is ruling and reigning. That is our hope. I have a lot more I want to say, but we're almost done. So I'm going to just close with this illustration of a revival that happened in Northern Ireland. Apparently there are these prostitutes in Northern Ireland in one of the towns that started coming to one of the local churches. And after they became Christians, and I believe um, from what I understand, like their whole lives were changed, people began to ask them of their testimony. And uh, one of the Irish prostitutes said, when the question was asked, why did you turn to Jesus? And they said, well, first of all, we ran out of customers. Um, the, there was a revival in the town, and so all the pagans that would come, to, or all the people who would come to them openly, quit coming because they were revival. They became Christians. They knew that was wrong, so they lost their livelihood. But then, secondly, they, she, one of the ladies said, on the, when they were on the street where they used to be scorned, the Christians began to treat us like humans and care about our lives. So the gospel had transformed the Christians in such a way to make them understand they were no better. 
And that transformed even the lives of these prostitutes who became Christians. And my question to you is this, and it's a question to myself. Are we transformed by these truths? Are we, let me just make this a little bit more real. Like, listen, I know it's Sunday and, and we're going to go to, you know, there's this, do you even want to be transformed? Can we start with that question? Can we just start with this sort of the secret answer? Do I even want the Holy Spirit to transform me? Or am I going to hold back parts of my heart? Which leads to destruction, by the way, in your own soul and in your community. I'm begging us as we start this series together, maybe we all do something uh, a little differently. Maybe we read ahead, we study it together. So when I'm up here, maybe you've even read it with me. We're unpacking because I'm joining in with you. I need the Holy Spirit to transform my life. Let us pray. Jesus, thank you for seasons of renewal and seasons of awakening. Lord, I, I suppose on the front side of any of those periods in history, there's doubt, there's concern, there's questions, there's fear. But Lord, we want to begin by, by just claiming the promise that you have sent your Holy Spirit. You've given us your scripture. You've given us the other means of grace, such as the Lord's Supper and fellowship and prayer. And I pray, Lord, that this congregation would be the beginning of a movement you're already starting all over the world, that we would see a revival in 2019 and 2020, and that many of the things that are socially um, just drop, bringing the world apart and breaking us apart would be healed by the power of Christ who rules and reigns over his entire kingdom. Amen.